0: If you were here last week, you heard about the parable of the 10 maidens who had not 5 of whom had not prepared enough for the long awaited bridegroom to bring enough oil. It was the next to last parable in the Gospel of Matthew, hoping to wake us up to live a life fully in faith and in trust as we wait the coming of Christ. Today's text is the last parable in Matthew, right before Jesus tells the story of God's coming again when God will separate the sheep from the goats, and then right before the crucifixion of Christ, the actual passion of God's love made real for us. We know the story. It's the parable of the talents. But I'm reading to you from a version that you do not know called The Message. It's more of an everyday slang interpretation. And I pray that God gives us ears to hear. I'm actually starting in the last verse of the last parable. But it's also the first verse of this parable. Beginning in the 13th verse. It says, So stay alert. You have no idea when he might arrive. It's also like a man going off on extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated to them responsibilities. To one he gave $5,000 and to another 2000 and to a third 1000 depending on their abilities. Then he left. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same. But the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment, and his master commended him. "'Good work,' he said. "'You did your job well. From now on, be my partner.'" The servant with the 2,000 showed how he had also doubled his master's investment, and his master commended him, too. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, you are my partner. And the servant, given 1,000, said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the banker's where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most, and get rid of this play it safe, who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into the outer darkness. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> at first glance, this morning's parable seems to support our present, present economic system run amuck. The wealth of the richest 1% continues to grow almost exponentially, while the wealth of the middle and lower class is shrinking. It justifies the saying, to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. In fact, I even heard this parable used in an investment seminar by an analyst making the case, not overtly, but covertly, implying that if we invest in him, we will reap the rewards. And if you don't and sit on your money, you will lose it all. But the thing with parables is that, well, they are parables, which means that they cannot be understood literally or taken at face value. They are para. Bulls, which is to say, alongside the story is another story, and we're meant to see the real truth of the story through the alongside story. They are stories to reveal to us a truth that can't be revealed otherwise. In other words, in many cases, they are symbolic. On the surface, this parable may seem to be about money, but underneath it is about something that is worth way more to add to the confusion this parable always shows up around stewardship time as if to point out that we are called to invest our time and our talent and our treasure generously rather than hoard it out of fear but you see I think this parable is secondarily about our talent and treasure and more about something else. It's secondarily about our talents, for sure. Painting or music or juggling or being able to pull a balloon through your nose and have it come out your mouth halfway blown up as I once saw on a Jay Leno show. (laughs) I guess that's talent. And I think it's secondarily about money, our treasure, even though we use the word talent in it, it's an exorbitant amount. Fifteen years wages for a laborer, talent, it's meant to be symbolic. Primarily what I think this parable is about is our life. The way we live our lives, the way we spend our time. Remember, it is in the context of expecting the coming of the Son of God, Jesus coming back, the Messiah, who had not yet come. People were losing confidence and losing patience and even losing faith. And Matthew was wanting to tell us, don't lose that, live now fully, even though we are waiting for that end time. The parable raises the question for us, That being so, then how do we live our lives now? How are we going to use the time that we have been given? Are we going to invest it faithfully or bury it fearfully? And how we decide this, you see, according to this parable, depends on how we understand the God or gods that we choose to put our trust in. The question this parable is meant to answer is this. Do we trust God enough to live a life of faith, extravagantly risking all that we have been given because we know that God is merciful and gracious and forgiving and loving? Or do we, in fear, bury our gifts our emotions, our passions, our soul's desire because we are afraid that God is harsh, judgmental, and in the end, keeping score with a finely sharpened pencil on everything we do. This is our crisis, our choice. Matthew thrusts this choice out to us in the midst of this parable. Which God... Or gods do we choose to trust because whichever one it is, is how we will spend all of our days. Will it be a life lived freely in faith, able to risk and trust? Or one that is so afraid of messing up or getting judged that we lock down all the doors and windows on our heart until the time comes for the final accounting when we will at least have what we started with. Granted, in this world, there's plenty to fear. Fear is projected on the talk shows and, and newspapers 24-7, from Ebola to ISIS, from budget deficits to climate change, from politics to, yes, even the Duke Blue Devils. Even doing away with fear-mongering or the crisis du jour, we are reminded of how much there is to fear with each passing day. Now, this will not come as good news to you, but it is. We all know in the end of creation, as we grow older, we atrophy, we deteriorate, and we even waste away. Now, It doesn't take much to get us afraid of that. The Bible goes out of its way to remind us, in fact, every chance it gets, not to feed us fear, but to push us to faith and hope built on trust, on trust in a God that does not decay or diminish or waste away. As Isaiah 40 reminds us, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass." Their constancy is like the flower of the field and the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. The fear part. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. The hope and trust The Bible calls this wisdom, our understanding and awareness of our mortality and finiteness. And it says that the wiser we are, the more we acknowledge it. Yes, all things like grass wither away. From dust we have come, to dust we shall return. Now what? Now what is the question? Dig a foxhole? Or... Turn in trust and faith to the Word of God, to God's faithful promise that God's love and purpose for creation will not perish, but will stand forever. Friends, faith and trust in this Word is meant to, if not completely, mostly overcome our fears enabling us to live fully and extravagantly and generously, taking risks like love and compassion and kindness, giving ourselves over to relationships, living generously with our gifts and forgiving each other and ourselves. As I read this parable, this is exactly what separates the first two servants from the third one. The difference between faith and fear... Faith that God was merciful and gracious enabled them to risk. Fear that God was wrathful and judgmental kept the last one from doing anything. He was immobilized and paralyzed by anxiety, afraid that since his master was harsh, he would not measure up when he returned, so he played it safe. He was racked with fear of failure, fear of responsibility, fear of success, fear of fear, fear of God, and fear of his own shadow. He took what he had been entrusted with and he buried it. We're all afraid. All of us are afraid on some level. We share a basket full of phobias. In fact, a moderate amount of fear is good. It's good for evolution. It keeps us alive. But in the end, when we, are, when we are living our lives, you see, we're not meant to be enslaved to those fears, but instead liberated from them to live in freedom and joy, as did the master in this story. Now this begs the question, at least for me, if faith is the antidote to fear the opposite of faith is not unfaith it's fear then what does this kind of faith look like how do we get it where does it come from and i think the bible makes this clear it's not about belief It's not about the rules and the doctrines and the dogma and the thoughts we have that we think we need to have in order to say, I believe. These are all mental constructions, too often, unfortunately, used by religions in order to keep the people in line. Instead, when the Bible speaks of faith, it means this, simply this, trust. It means to trust Faith is trust. It is a matter of the heart, not the brain. It comes when being in relationship with another long enough forms itself around trusting. That's why this parable is so powerful. It's about the talents. The last parable in the gospel about the talents. And what Matthew wants to emphasize is this extravagant gift of God given to us the talents that we have been entrusted with through our faith, which is about the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Through Christ, we are given a revelation of who God is and what God is like. We can trust God because Jesus, who we confess, knew God better than any other human being trusted God, But we can especially trust God because through Jesus' life of love, his death on a cross, and his extravagant, beyond time, eternal power of resurrection shows us the way to new life. In this, God has shown himself, God's self, to be trustworthy. not to save us from our human condition, not to prevent us from suffering and facing all of the human things that we face, not to fade, save us from fading, but to save us into the eternal hope of God's will and promise and truth. Strangely enough, when I wrote that sentence yesterday on Saturday morning about 10.30, I was moved emotionally. I have preached this line how many times? For 27 years I have said, we can trust in Jesus, we can trust in God because of the revelation given to us in Jesus Christ. We know that we can trust God's promises because Christ is the promise of God made real to us. I have written it, I have preached it, I have teached it. But yesterday morning, for some reason, even now, I was touched with emotion. And it struck me again one more time, this is not about our heads, but about our hearts. As all trust is, I guess you could say I got a return on my investment. I felt like I had been released from something, as if the doors and windows had been thrown wide open and the vista of God's ever-flowing grace was right before me. God is trustworthy. It blew me away. Extravagant, generous, Loving, redeeming God of Jesus Christ is trustworthy. If that doesn't move us, what will? Friends, this is the faith we are given to hold in trust. This is what we are given. And this parable is clear that what we are meant to do with it is to use it or lose it, to scatter it like seed across the landscape of our lives instead of burying it in the ground. In other words, we're called to take a risk. I ran across this old article from the late Emma Bombeck that paints the picture of what I'm trying to say. She was asked if she had a stash of ideas that she kept aside or saved over the years to guarantee that when the time would come, she would have something to write about each week In a response to the article, she said, What's saved is lost. I don't save anything. My pockets are empty at the end of a week. So is my gas tank. So is my file of ideas. I tried out the best I've got, and come the next week, I bargain, whimper, make promises, throw myself on the mercy of the Almighty for just three more columns in exchange for cleaning my oven. I did not get to this point overnight, I came from a family of savers who were sired in poverty, fear, and who worshipped at the altar of self-denial, fear, my addition. Throughout the years, I've seen a fair number of my family who have died leaving candles that have never been lit, appliances that never got out of the box. It gets to be a habit, this holding back. I have learned that silverware tarnishes when it is not used, perfume turns to alcohol, candles melt in the attic, And ideas that are saved for a dry week often become dated. I always had a dream that when I am asked to give an accounting of my life to a higher court, it will be like this. So, empty your pockets, God says. What have you got left of your life? Any dreams that were unfilled? Any unused talent that we gave you when you were born that you still have left? Any unsaid compliments or bits of love that you haven't spread around? And I will answer, I have nothing in return. I spent everything you gave me. I am naked as the day I was born. Seems to me this is exactly what living by a life of faith rather than fear looks like. It enables us to risk in trust. In trust. Or as John Wesley, the brother of Charles Wesley, the two brothers who started the Methodist Church, said when asked the question, what could one person do on behalf of the kingdom of God, responded, do all the good you can. In all the ways you can, in all the places you can, You can at all the times you can with all the people you can as long as you ever can. It's flinging it out. And a life lived this way comes as we faithfully invest our trust in the one who has done all he can to set us free from the power of fear and who has invested everything for just that reason. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.